<laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> we're the lucky people to be the last session of the day, so we're going to make it as energetic and lively as we possibly can. Um, this is using uh, big data and other technologies to combat human trafficking. My name is Stella Dost, and I'm a contributing editor at the Thomson Reuters Foundation. In this panel, we want to put the human face onto big data and bad actors. For international criminal networks, human trafficking and child sexual exploitation are highly lucrative sources of revenue. They go alongside drugs and arms running. But trafficking is not only a human rights issue today, it's much more than that. It's part of the lifeblood of organized crime and terrorist activity. So let me give you a little data on that. Can't help but throw data out around here. The industry generates about 150 billion in revenues a year. There's anywhere from 20 million to 32 billion men, women, and children who are, in the, uh, who are trafficked into forced labor and commercial sex industry every year. That's men in debt bondage on fishing ships. There's in Asia, the construction industry in the Gulf, uh, families working in brick factories in India or toiling in Uzbekistan and cotton fields, even here in the United States on tomato, tomato, sorry, fields in Florida. <laughs> My accent somewhere hang, hovers over the mid-Atlantic. Um, but the vast majority of slaves are women and girls in the commercial sex industry. And the online sex industry is the fastest growing crime, according to the FBI, and it's the third largest type of organized crime in the world. This is astonishing figures when you think about it. So we're talking about a modern-day form of slavery that's on a scale unknown previously, and its spread is being enabled very quickly by the digital economy. So we have a fabulous panel to discuss some of the issues this raises. Uh, starting to my left here, Brad Miles. He's CEO of the Polaris Project. He's a leading advocate in the anti-trafficking field, been for over a decade. Polaris has built a national trafficking hotline that he's taken internationally. It's a model worldwide and a nucleus for global coordinating of uh, human targeting human trafficking networks. Welcome, Brad. To his left is Amy Pope. She is Deputy Homeland Security Advisor and Deputy Assistant to the President on the National Security Council. She's worked on transborder security issues at the Justice Department, and she was Deputy Chief of Staff in the Criminal Division and has worked as a prosecutor, I believe, in trafficking cases. Uh, to her left is Ernie Allen, who I'm sure many of you know. He has an incredible track record of over, over three decades. He led the organization, uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He now is working as a private consultant, also with the McCain Institute. But under his tenure at the NCMEC, he had a recovery rate, he raised the recovery rate for missing children from 62% to 97%. Astonishing. Uh, he's worked across business sectors and globally to combat child exploitation with top banks, internet companies, and drug companies. And he's also the founder of the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, which has built a network around 23 nations. Uh, to his left is Killian Moot, an expert in social responsibility and supply chain management. Ernie led the Free to Work project, which was funded by the State Department to develop risk assessment tools for companies to use in tracking trafficking. And he is now the project director of Know the Chain, which focuses on slavery in the supply chain at Humanity United. 
welcome, and last but not least, a colleague from Thomson Reuters, John Solomon. He is Director of Threat Finance Research at Thomson Reuters' Acellus Business Line. He, joined, he uh, leads a team of 400 researchers worldwide who use data analytics to, uh, to look at risk exposure for corporate clients. WorldCheck, you may well be very familiar with. It's one of the premier databases of the financial industry. John has led research efforts at WorldCheck to build its Iran economic interest segment, and he's debriefed terrorist financiers in Southeast Asia and worked in the Middle East and worked in Pakistan, Uzbekistan, London, Singapore, and now, of course, Washington. So welcome to all of you. Thank you. <laughs> um, we've started, for those of you who've not seen, with this picture. This is the human face of slavery. John. You expose this case. This is on a fishing vessel, caged workers right. on a fishing vessel in Southeast Asia. You use data to do it. Tell us right. what you did. Sure. So this is a, this is actually an image of a, of a uh, a cage full of of workers, modern day slaves, held on a remote island in Southeast Asia in the Arafura Sea, which is a key area for pirate fishing which we found has a, has a nexus with, with uh, slave labor. And so we found that through reports on the vessels uh, and reporting on illegal uh, foreign fishermen that um, we could track that back to up through the chain to the uh, corporate entities that own those vessels all the way up to a NASDAQ listed company. Um, onto one of the world's largest supermarkets where the seafood is, is sold. And so it's just a matter of, of that local language, uh, data mining and data collection, data analysis, and then um, from there, the resolution on the supply chain. You did this all through publicly available data? Yes, well, it's, it wasn't, uh, yes, but it wasn't just us. I mean, you know, we all know on this panel that that uh, human trafficking, it's a global issue. It's the, the networks that are involved are extremely connected. So it requires networks to beat networks. And you know, it was only through partnering with uh, some very strong pr uh, partners in, in the nonprofit community um, and governments in some, some instances, coming together, sharing insights, even on an informal basis, that, was, that helped us to, to get that ground level truth that we could then connect with huge huge amounts of other data and connect the dot to, through the supply chain. And you said that this was a NASDAQ-listed company that was ultimately buying this fish that ended up on the well, grocery stores of Walmart. It was one of the, the beneficial owners in the, in the ownership structure. There was also um, uh, a wealthy family that we found that, that controlled many of the entities that operated with that NASDAQ-listed company. Um, state-owned enterprises that had you know, a, stake, a stake in this practice. So it's a diverse range of actors. Um, criminal enterprise, that that's really makes up the third-party labor brokers that um, are reported, but there's little detail in those. That, that's the real node, I think, that is involved with, with this, this component. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, there's red flags involved. So, so the vessels that you know, they have foreign crews, they're, they're fishing in, say, Indonesian waters, yet none of the, the fishermen are from Indonesia or have papers. Um, you know, in the maritime environment, 
on a on a ship, for example, you know they 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 make their catch and then transship that those fish onto refrigerated vessels, and they're out at sea for say a year, and these individuals are, are literally enslaved on ships for for that period of time. Um, so those who are at the upper levels of the chain, the yes. Nasdaq company the beneficial owners, the state-owned enterprises you mentioned, and ultimately the grocery stores that were selling this fish. What was their level of awareness? What corporate awareness was there? It's, it's a good question. I think there are varying levels of awareness, but it's a, it's a very complex uh, network graph. And it was actually too complex to put a slide up here for you. But, um, you know, I think I think there is some level of awareness, certainly, because there's, it's, uh, but it's shrouded in kind of, it's, it's coded by saying, you know, uh, didn't have the right passports or, you know, didn't have the right papers. But it's, if you want to call it what it is, it's, you know, behind that surf, behind that facade is really this, you know, people in cages and, and, and remote islands where, you know, that's, that's right. Amy, this is a horrendous human rights violation that John, through the good work that he did, has exposed in his work, a risk analysis for corporate clients. Explain why is human trafficking more than a human rights violation? Does it become a national security issue? It is a national security issue. I mean, we, um, and my, one of my primary responsibilities is to make sure that our stakeholders within the federal government understand its implications for national security. What we know is that traffickers are using the same routes, the same tools, the same facilitators as all sorts of criminal organizations, whether it's procuring passports or other illegal documents whether it's going through um, unregulated border crossings, whether it's feeding, into, feeding money into other cartels or criminal organizations. We know that there is a lot of intersection between these different criminal organizations. And we believe it's our responsibility to try to connect those dots. And so I think the most exciting work that we've seen um, in terms of big data and how we can uncover the national security implications is really bringing together our federal stakeholders, the traditional law enforcement uh, agencies that maybe do drug trafficking violations and other um, investigations with our intelligence community and the people who do human trafficking prosecutions and look for the links between those different organizations. We have a very exciting pilot we've recently done through our Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Task Force and we are seeing those connections come to light and I think that empowers the law enforcement bodies, intelligence actors, et cetera, to make the connections, to take down the networks, and to go beyond kind of the individual cases, which do matter very much, um, but to really get to the root causes and to break down the network. Is trafficking being used by terrorists, uh, enemies of the United States, as a source of revenue? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what we're all seeing um, happen with ISIL, for example. I mean, it's, that's, that's probably the hottest example right now in the news. But it's, it's, uh, humans are another commodity. I hate to say that, but that's really what's happening, right? Whether it's drugs or humans, um, they're just another commodity. And so I think what the president has really tried to do and, and what our responsibility has been to do is to make the connection so that people don't just see trafficking as the individual 
who may be um, prostituted on the street, but they understand how it feeds into much larger organizations and how it um, can fund uh, a series of very significant crimes in addition to human trafficking. It's a completely different scale. Um, President Obama in 2012 put um, trafficking on the agenda, on the big, on the national agenda, and he also has required that government contractors uh, take certain steps to make sure that they don't have slavery in their supply chain. Can you tell me how well that initiative is going? So the regulation, putting together the regulation, actually took quite a bit of time, and it was actually published this March. Um, so I think the jury's still out in as to how well it's working, and we need to ultimately look at um, whether the, the incidents are changing, whether it's driving the market. But his first priority was to make sure that within our own federal government family, that we are taking the best practices to eliminate human trafficking in our supply chain. But ultimately, it has to go well beyond uh, the federal family. What I found most exciting is when we rolled out the federal um, regulation, we actually convened a group of corporate stakeholders at the White House. And the number of corporate stakeholders who are individually um, or as private entities taking action to identify um, how their supply chain functions, to clean up their supply chain, um, was really um, inspiring. And I think that's really the direction we need to go. And I would say further, what I find um, a very useful place for data to, to play a role is giving consumers the knowledge so that they can make important choices about what they're buying and understanding the supply chain that it's coming from so that they can make a choice between uh, one corporation or another. So we need to, um, as John said, make sure that the corporations understand um, their supply chains and then empower the consumers to make choices based on it. I'd like to come back to the supply chain issue, but first I'd like to turn to Ernie who has done uh, many decades of work on child sexual exploitation. And when you think back nearly 30 years ago, the biggest threat was the kid being picked up at the shopping mall. The digital economy has massively changed that. Explain. It's changed the whole dynamic of the problem. Uh, these, this is a problem that has, has or is moving from the streets to the internet. Uh, traffickers, the exploiters <coughs> today are using technology for a very basic reason. It's easier, it's less risky, it's more profitable. Uh, so the, our goal has to be to increase the risk and eliminate the profitability. Uh, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge particularly because of the digital economy and the advent of internet anonymity. Uh, today, those who engage in these activities can hide behind the anonymity of tools like Tor or the Invisible Internet Project, I2P, uh, leaving no IP address, uh, and collecting payment in unregulated, unbanked virtual currencies. So the challenge is for law enforcement and public policymakers to adapt, because historically law enforcement is the last entity of society to be able to take advantage of these new technologies. We have to change that. Yeah, we heard that a little bit earlier today, that the governments are the last to react. <laughs> so what progress are you making in uh, these multi-jurisdictional and cross-jurisdictional efforts to bring the best minds together to address the issue? Well, I, I think the progress has been enormous. Uh, I don't suggest that it's anywhere near solved. But for example, in 2003 in the United States, uh, the National Center, which I ran at the time, the FBI and the Justice Department, launched an initiative called Innocence Lost. 
the design, the intent was for the first time to look at this problem from the 30,000 foot level. Uh, the point you make is a really good one, and that is this is organized crime. Uh, this is a multi-jurisdictional problem in which uh, crosses lines and having local law enforcement be the only entity addressing it just doesn't work. So the good news is that over those past 12 years, more than 2,000 traffickers have been successfully prosecuted, uh, largely through the efforts of Amy and the Justice Department on this. Uh, and among those 2,000 convictions, 15 of them have gotten life sentences. Many of them have gotten sentences of 20 years and up, unprecedented in our history. Yet the most shocking aspect of this is that as soon as they go away, somebody springs up in their place. And I think what that speaks to is the fact that fundamentally, this is, as Amy pointed out, this is about the sale of a commodity. And as long as there's a demand for that commodity, simply targeting the trafficker is not going to end it. So we have to take a far more comprehensive approach. Somebody was talking a little bit earlier about that, I think it was Jim Dinkins saying that on sexual exploitation, it's not merely an enforcement issue, it's a cultural issue. Absolutely. Yeah, and that probably it's, not, it's, not for this panel, but that And is it's a, a public health issue. issue. Yeah. It's not only a human rights issue, but it's a public health issue because of the impact, the harm that's being done to these victims, which many times is lifelong. Let's go back to the corporate uh, supply chain, perhaps a little bit more <laughs> manageable in one area, as important as that is. Killian, I'd like to understand more about the work that you have done to try and develop tools so that companies can, particularly in the, today's globalized economy, where you have a supplier of a supplier of supplier to get you your uh, tennis shoes. Right. What, um, sorry, I was looking at John Kelly. What work, are you, are you, how, how can you help companies? That's a great question. Thank you so much for, for having me here to, to talk a little bit about our work at Know the Chain and <clears throat> in Humanity United as well. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit and build on the point that Amy made about the role and, and the leadership position that the federal government has taken in terms of passing the executive order um, and what we're seeing and how quickly this legislative landscape has changed for companies on the global scale. Uh, since 2010, we have four potential laws that companies have to comply with that all relate to management of their supply chain if potentially they supply to the federal government. Um, and that's drastically changed in a very quick period of time. And it's a kind of an inward pressure that companies are experiencing that now they have to report or make known steps that they're taking specifically to address these issues. The other big trend that we're seeing that's impacting companies in terms of how they think about transparency and approach it is the rapid spread of technology. By 2020, it's estimated that the entire world will be connected. And with that, people will be able to link companies in an increasingly way as John has done to these abuses in their supply chain. So companies today on the global scale have an opportunity to engage in the transparency discussion and figure out a way to leverage it and use it to their advantage. I'll tell one story. Um, recently, I've been getting, engaging with a, a major apparel company that has over 5,000 suppliers. Uh, they took the unprecedented step of publicly disclosing their direct suppliers. Um, very few companies in the apparel sector have done that. And when they did it, some people in the company thought, oh my gosh, the sky's going to fall. You know, our supply chain's going to completely be disrupted. And in fact, it worked to their advantage. 
an NGO came to them and said, hey, we know this supplier and we think there's actually an issue and you should really check your audits. You should make sure that you're engaging these workers. And they were able to address an issue before it became a tremendous disruption for their supply chain. And I think increasingly as we, as we live in this globalized, transparent world, the more companies think about management first and disclosure second, how you engage these issues, they're going to be able to win the trust of consumers. They're going to be able to win the, the trust of stakeholders and engage these issues in a substantial way that appropriately addresses and reduces the likelihood that forced labor is used in the products that we purchase every day. That's a fascinating example because the corporate response is usually, if I disclose something that's giving to my competitors a competitive advantage, I lose that little edge. So really what you're talking about is exactly what Ernie was saying, is you need a cultural change. And that is the type of, you need a cultural corporate change as well. Yes? Yeah, and I would say any company that thinks that their supplier list is their competitive advantage has a bigger problem, right? Because if you talk to suppliers out there or you talk to brands, they know who each other are sourcing from. So if you're worried about sharing your supplier information in your final tier production, then you need to maybe rethink your business model um, and engage the fact that we are in a hyper-transparent world. And if people want information, they can find that information. Uh, with 2.5 million smartphones out there in the world, information can quickly sh be shared by individuals uh, in a way that you know a decade we weren't able to do. Tell me about Know the Chain. What, how does that work? So Know the Chain, what we're doing is uh, we're acknowledging how quickly this world is changing. And we are a resource um, to businesses and investors to understand these issues, to disclose uh, appropriate information, and really push them deeper into the supply chain. We believe that you can't solve problems that you don't see. And our objective is to engage in a constructive dialogue with companies and then the investors to say, how do you appropriately engage this issue? How do you share information in a way that gets us a better understanding of what's happening? How do we start getting to not the direct supply chain, but the indirect supply chain, where we know the most egregious abuses are happening? How do we start pushing that conversation deeper in a way that gets us a better understanding of, of how we share information in a, in a non-competitive environment? Um, if you uh, operate in Malaysia, there's a likelihood that you might have forced labor in your supply chain. And so how do we, as an industry, if we're operating in that context, find ways to share information? Because collectively, we can be stronger together if we're able to share that information in a way that makes us understand where the risks are. That complements your free-to-work project where you were actually taking data to build a tool that companies could use to see. Yes. Yeah, we were informing consumers. We were trying to, to leverage the power of the opportunity to inform consumers in a way uh, that would give them the ability to purchase uh, from companies that they believe align with their values. May I bring into the conversation Brad, who's working completely at the other end, the actual front line of uh, where people who need help in a trafficking case, we'll call up Polaris. Mm -hmm. Brad, talk about your work and tell us how you're using data to be more effective. Sure, so uh, we, uh, the federal government in 2007 uh, relaunched this concept of the National Human Trafficking mm -hmm. Resource Center. And it was meant to be a single memorable number for the country on human trafficking related cases. Mm -hmm. There have been some feedback from survivors that when they were stuck in the situation, there was too many hotlines. There was information overload. And the pimp is bringing the survivor to these 10 different cities. And each different city, you have to memorize a different hotline number. And sometimes maybe you're not comfortable calling 911 because you don't want to get law enforcement involved in your case if you're worried about having already been forced to engage in criminal activity or whatnot. So this feedback from survivors was, we'd like one single memorable number for the country on all human trafficking cases. 
and Micmac, which, which Ernie had built and founded, existed for child sex trafficking and child exploitation cases, but for the broader types of trafficking, labor, adult, and others, there wasn't this consistent hotline. So the federal government launched this, this hotline, 24-7 hotline. Polaris was chosen to run and operate it. So our mandate, which was similar to the NCMEC's mandate, was build a national call center for the country that was connected with all the different entities throughout the United States. It was connected with thousands of nonprofits that could serve victims in different places. It was connected with thousands of law enforcement entities. But the message to survivors was sometimes in design thinking, you say things should be uh, delightful and ridiculously easy, right? Or whatever they talk about. That's why Uber works. That's why Google works. It's the more delightful it is and the more ridiculously easy it is, the more we're likely to use it. And so we tried to make the hotline delightful and ridiculously easy, which is one number. You could either call it, you could text it, and then that was being blasted to survivors and community members throughout the country. So we began to get flooded with calls over the past seven years. Thousands of survivors called in from within the trafficking situation. My pimp just fell asleep in the hotel room. I'm now going to sneak into a bathroom and make a phone call or I'm in a domestic, domestic servitude situation and the person that I work for just fell asleep and I'm going to make a phone call quietly. So we're getting all those calls. We operate 24-7. So over the course of about seven years, we learned about 21,000 cases of, of human trafficking that for us, we're not able to conclusively say this is a trafficking case. We're not law enforcement. We're not there on the ground. But based on the indicators of violence and threats and deception and the control tactics of traffickers, we could say this sounds like a trafficking case based on what we're hearing on the calls. So we then realized this is an enormous amount of data. This is a centralized source of data to understand the footprint of trafficking throughout the country. And we could begin doing pattern recognition. We could begin looking at link analysis with the data. So when we started operating the hotline, most nonprofits can go on salesforce.com and get the nonprofit starter pack, and you could get 10 free licenses of Salesforce, and you could build your own CRM system. And Salesforce operates that and offers that to every hotline, every nonprofit in the world, essentially. So we built our own CRM system using Salesforce. So every hotline call, we're recording up to 130 variables in a Salesforce system. So we now have these 120,000 records that are well-built records in Salesforce, and then got in touch with Palantir, and Palantir said that's a great data set that you can begin analyzing and using in different ways. And so now through the combination of Salesforce and Palantir, we're essentially looking at that data as the data is coming in. So part of the purpose of the hotline is actually working the individual cases. This case comes in, it needs an individual response on the ground with hyper-local actors in the area. So we've built out these protocols, about 250 protocols, with different local areas across the country of if the call comes in from this part of the country, here's how you work it. And here's how, here are the right agents and the right law enforcement and the right nonprofits to work that case. But meanwhile, we're also analyzing the data to understand patterns. So we looked at the 21,000 trafficking cases, and we saw basically 25 distinct types of trafficking that exist in modern America. And pretty much any call that comes into the hotline that describes a type of trafficking can fit into that typology of those 25 types. This is a case of a strip club controlled by Eastern European organized crime fits into that bucket. This is a case of interfamilial pimping where a parent is pimping out their own child. 
as awful as that is, there are examples of that. And so um, that fits into that bucket. And so now we're thinking about these 25 distinct types. What can be done about those 25 types to begin to really get to dismantling and disrupting and doing what Ernie described, which is increase the risk and decrease the profit. But in order to get to that point, you can't fight trafficking with one silver bullet all at once, writ large. That's not what the crime looks like. It's, it's this incredibly diverse mosaic of different types of criminal activity all being called human trafficking. So you have to tease it out and fight it piece by piece. And so we've been able to see that with the national hotline with these 25 types and the data that's calling in and, and the data that we're seeing with the calls that we're working. So it's kind of a dual purpose to the hotline. So how do you, uh, in the government, take the type of data that Brad has been able to collect at Polaris and uh, make it actionable? So we're, I will tell you that's an ongoing project, right? So we are, we're working with folks like Brad and folks like um, Killian to, for a couple of different purposes. One is how can we feed that information to law enforcement when it's appropriate? And how can we feed the information that law enforcement has out to our foreign partners, for example, so that they can take action? And how can we um, connect the dots, right? So I think one of the, another exciting tool that I've seen in action is one that's created by DARPA, which basically will crawl the web, the, the dark web as well as kind of your traditional web, and make the connections between, we know that there's this this call happening you know, locally in Minnesota or Indianapolis or wherever, and we see a connection from, from that particular case over here in Thailand. Or we see you know, it's just building the links between sources and the crime itself. And that allows us to be most effective and most strategic as we're engaging, whether it's diplomatically, whether it's in terms of law enforcement, whether it's with our foreign partners. Um, but as Brad said, you have to take this on on so many different levels because it's the only way for us to be effective. And I will tell you, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I don't think we, as the US government, I'm not sure that we, as the panel here today, can speak expertly about the scope of the problem. I think we all see parts of the problem, but the nature of the crime is that it's underground, right? And the resources that we've historically developed uh, or that we've used for this particular crime have not equaled the resources that we use to counter terrorism, for example, or even counter narcotics. And so I think our task in front of us is to use the lessons from those other disciplines and export it into what we're doing on trafficking so that we better understand the scope of the problem. Ernie, take us a little bit deeper into that scope of the problem. You've seen child sexual exploitation move into the dark web. Well, uh, one of the things that Amy says is exactly right, and that is one of the challenges that is, is that there really are no real, meaningful, measurable data. Yes. We can't really quantify the problem. I think all of us think it is huge and, and enormous. Uh, as it relates to the dark web, uh, as you know, I'm doing some work for the British government on this, and a university in the UK just did some research on pedophile websites on the dark web. Uh, what they found is that pedophile websites only accounted for 2% of the total sites on the dark web, but their estimate is that it accounts for 80% of the traffic. Mm -hmm. So there is a reason why those engaging in these kinds of most high-risk activities 
are seeking the anonymity of the dark web. There's a problem, though. I, I want to broaden this a little bit to talk about finding better tools and technologies to tackle a problem. Um, when the mastermind behind Silk Road, when that site was brought down in 2013, within months there was a replacement site up. Right. Uh, similarly, when the Hacktivist Collective Anonymous shut down the child porn site Lolita, the same thing happened. Okay. It was back up and running, 15,000 members, and over 1.3 million child porn images were up. Yeah. So clearly, cracking down, going for the bad actors, using all your data tools to find them in the first place and then getting them is just a pinprick. It, it's scarcely a wave. What tools, technologies, techniques do you need to be better at this? Well, Context-wise, uh, when we began, I had the honor of co-chairing a task force on this with Steve Rubley of Thomson Reuters. And Thomson Reuters has been an extraordinary leader uh, in this fight. Uh, when we began that effort, one of the first things we did was talk to law enforcement leaders around the world from some of the most respected, most sophisticated entities. My question was, how do you investigate this kind of activity on the dark web? And they responded in two ways. One, infiltration. That's what law enforcement does, but we know that infiltration is expensive, time-consuming, and usually ineffective. And the second technique was to wait for the offender to make a mistake, to connect, for example, from a Tor IP to a non-Tor IP and, and leave a trail. And my not very politic response was, it sounds to me like we're catching the really dumb ones, not the sophisticated organized criminals who represent the greatest threat. So one of the most important challenges is to develop new tools. Now, there's, there's work underway, DARPA, and the Memex project, which a Amy mentioned. Uh, Jason Thomas of Thomson Reuters mentioned a company called Terbium Labs in Baltimore, which is developing some sophisticated technology. But we need technology to scrape, to mine, to probe this anonymous internet, or else the offenders we're most concerned about are simply gonna hide in the shadows. John, what can the corporate sector bring to this? Well, I think the corporate sector can bring a lot, I mean, just a lot of expertise, a lot of resources, a lot of computing power to, to be a, you know, a critical component in any system to, to get resolution on the dark web. I mean, um, you know, back to, you know, maybe this, this earlier case, you know, we have, uh, I'm very privileged to work with some incredibly smart people. I mean, PhDs from, from MIT in a variety of subjects who are able to crunch data together. Um, you know, then it's, it's also working uh, with other organizations. I mean, you mentioned Christopher White's work uh, with the Memex project is, is, is brilliant. And, and really, you know, that's the way of the information age and the internet. You have to connect with other uh, components of expertise, other capabilities in order to build a, really a comprehensive system. Specific. What are we talking about? Do we need more public-private partnerships cooperating? Do we need multi-stakeholder frameworks? What's the path forward here? What, where are we failing? Where can we get better? Killian. I, I've just been thinking about Brad's uh, great metaphor of this being a tapestry, and I think this similarly applies to solutions. We need a broad tapestry to address this problem. Um, yes, we need more stakeholder engagement, more MSIs, multiple multi-stakeholder engagements, or opportunities for 
companies to come together in a pre-competitive conversation to get deeper into their supply chain. And technology is great, and we can utilize technology, but there's also something fundamental that we need to do. And, and from a supply chain perspective, that's engaged directly with the workers. They're the ones that are going to give us a sense of where the risks are. And if we can establish that as a kind of business practice of engaging more directly with the workers, if you're doing a social audit, um, utilizing worker voice communication technology, making sure that you have the appropriate risk factors identified and informed by the workers themselves, I think we can meld that offline and online technology effectively to be better at addressing these problems. Yeah, this, is, this is very interesting. This is like crowdsourcing the information. Uh, there's a couple of technologies, LaborLink, Labor Voices. Yeah, yeah LaborLink, Labor Voices for worker communication. There's also platforms, and that's kind of a, a brand to a, uh, a What are they, like apps you put in your they're smartphone? Kind of, yeah, text-to-voice text to allow for a worker to communicate directly with um, a third party outside. But there's also technology being developed that allows for workers to communicate directly with each other. It's kind of like a Yelp or a TripAdvisor for mm -hmm. you know, individuals that are entering into the migration labor migration work stream to make sure that if they're going through a, a labor broker, how is that labor broker? Are they, are they potentially putting themselves at risk? Um, there's also ways that you can source uh, social sentiment through things like uh, Ulula, Ulula uh, or um, True Value that gives you a sense of what does a general risk look like? What are people saying out there in social media about this area? Are there risks that you should be aware of? So those types of opportunities do exist and we need to harness them to a greater degree. Yeah, good. Virtual currencies. This is another very difficult area linked to the dark web. Um, are they becoming an important part of the trafficking process? And where can you, is there any different way it needs to be addressed from uh, how virtual currencies are being addressed in general? Well, I mean, my, my thought. First of all, by, by way of context, I think virtual currencies are a good thing. I think they, they're going to help uh, bring financial inclusion to the 2.5 billion people on the planet today without access to banks and credit cards. The challenge is the unintended consequences. And there is no question that people, that the kinds of offenders we're talking about are increasingly moving to virtual currencies because they're unregulated, unbanked, and at least what's called pseudo-anonymous. Uh, there is, for example, with Bitcoin, there is a blockchain so that all transactions are transparent, but it's very difficult for law enforcement to go to that transaction to a real human being. So there again, um, techniques are, are emerging. Uh, our view in the recommendation- Sorry, just, just to be clear, they're being used uh, to purchase sex as well as to transfer money between uh, yes. the traffickers or organized crime elements? Is y it on yes, both yes, levels? Yes, on both. Now, using virtual currencies, the, the criminal enterprise sacrifices a little speed and they sacrifice a little bit of customer loyalty mm -hmm. because it's an anonymous transaction. So in our view, and I know the view of federal law enforcement with whom I've spoken, is the most serious offenders who are the most directly involved <coughs> In, in the enterprise or, or engaging in, in this kind of activity. Uh, the recommendation that our task force, Steve and I co-chaired, uh, came up with was basically that what we don't need to do is impose draconian regulation. What we need to do is persuade countries to enforce 
the existing money uh, transmitter law. Because at some point, every one of these criminal enterprises is going to want to trade their Bitcoin for dollars or euros or pounds or yen. So if we can focus on that exchange level where that money happens, and the US has done that via FinCEN, Canada has done that through FinTrack, most of the rest of the world has yet to do it. So the challenge is uh, these crimes, these uh, transactions do not move uh, nation to nation. They move network to network. So this is a challenge we have to look at in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sort of the sexy topic of the day, that that there's there's so much activity that is going on through the traditional sectors that we shouldn't take our eye off of that, right? Absolutely. So, we've seen we've had a lot of success, for example, with Western Union mm -hmm. um, as a as a predictor of where if we look even at our Central American migration patterns, right? We we work with them, we get data from from a place like Western Union, and we have a pretty good sense of when we're going to see flows of people across our borders, right? Or if you look with at traditional banking sectors, I mean, there's still a tremendous it's amount of- It's a predictive of, tool. Yes, exactly, yes. exactly. And so I think while virtual currency may be the direction that the bad guys are going, that's mm -hmm. still fairly sophisticated. It is. And mm -hmm. the vast, um, my, my assumption based on what I've seen is the vast majority um, of illicit activity is not actually happening there yet. Yeah, is that your experience, Brad? I, I think for the most part, yes. And in, in most of our experiences in the United States, we, we have seen, and Ernie can speak to this as well, some of the sex ads being sold on Backpage.com and other places yeah. where they're now offering Bitcoin. But I, I do think that the majority, like if you look at the 9,000 illicit massage parlors across the country <laughs> that are selling sex in cities across the country, I don't know of a single one of them that's, that's, that's offering anything other than cash yeah. and credit card. Yeah. Um, if you look at the majority of the Latino sex trade in the United States with these longstanding sex trafficking and pimping networks coming out of Mexico and Latin America, installing residential brothels throughout the United States with women and girls where Latino men buy sex, $30 for 15 minutes of sex with one of these women, it's almost entirely a cash-based mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I, I think we're, we're trying to, to learn about some of this as, as, it, as it evolves. I think Ernie's can really speak to that. But our day-to-day -day experience on the hotline hasn't really revealed as much of these virtual currencies, except in the case of Backpage and a few other places. But most of it that we're seeing is cash and credit card and some of the traditional currencies, the way that, that Amy spoke of that. Yeah, but in the spirit of uh, the government's always the last to do this, you may want to right. say yes, get it. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, let me pick up on something um, that you just said about massage parlors, nail salons. At the Thomson Reuters Foundation, we did some work. We were talking to a bank that explained how they'd developed an algorithm and realized that there were all of these transactions going through on American Express cards in Brooklyn and the Bronx at uh, you know, 1 and 2 in the morning. And who has a, the nails done at 1 or 2 in the morning, a $500 nail job? And this banking institution realized that this obviously was a front for prostitution. Um, so we brought together 10 major banks with Cyrus Vance and drew up, and you, you were involved with this, Brad, and drew up some recommendations of how other banks can use these techniques to identify when there's illicit activities going on. Um, what other ways can we bring together groups 
in order to come up with these types of solutions. I mean, we're very proud that we could do that, but uh, it seems that there's more space that needs to be created for this to happen. I throw it out of ideas. essential that we build systems to follow the money. I mean, the, the reality is, I mean, and I think it's, there's no better place for the use of big data uh, than in following the money. Uh, Brad and I have uh, helped bring together a group of credit card companies and, and other financial companies simply to explore uh, what are the options, how using uh, the suspicious activity reports uh, to identify the kinds of indicators that you talked about that Western Union and Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA, came up with. Uh, I think the financial industry can do a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. and, and the reality is that the single most effective thing we can do is disrupt the business model. Mm -hmm. And American Express unilaterally uh, stopped the use of their credit cards on sites Backpage. like Backpage. Yeah. Uh, the Cook County Sheriff in Illinois wrote a letter to MasterCard and Visa, whether it had anything to do with their decision or not, MasterCard and Visa have stopped the use of, of their logo, their brand, on Backpage and similar sites. I think they can do that simply as a matter of applying their terms of use. So I think that's... Better creative, more creative use of the existing Yeah, ultimately tools. you follow the money, you disrupt the business model, uh, you make them change their, their current plan and go off and engage in some other illicit enterprise. Mm -hmm. I guess the thing that I'd, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd say to, to piggyback on that, I, I think that it's a really exciting time of entrepreneurship and innovation mm -hmm. in the human trafficking space because if you think we're, next week we're going to celebrate the 10-year anniversary or 15-year anniversary of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, mm -hmm. the TVPA of, of 2000. And so many of the initial years in the field, there was a put the issue on the radar, yeah. awareness raising. Mm -hmm. There was also, where are these victims even going to go? Mm -hmm. there, was, there was safety net building. There were shelters. Mm -hmm. There were task forces built. And then there was even just a policy framework that needed to be put into place because when the TVPA passed, no states even made human trafficking a crime. Mm -hmm. So they were using kidnapping and pimping and abduction and these other, these other types of crimes. And so for the past 15 years, there's been a lot of foundation laying that, mm -hmm. that's happened. So now we have a stronger policy framework in place. Mm -hmm. We have a stronger safety net in place with service providers and places where victims can go. And I think awareness has been majorly raised with the level of, of media and teaching this in schools and colleges. But we haven't gotten to the level of disruption that we're looking towards, mm -hmm. even with the 2,000 arrests on the innocence loss. And, and, even with, mm -hmm. and so I think everybody in the field is really in this stage of how do we build off the foundation and turn towards disruption mm -hmm. and actually get to the place where the criminal businesses feel their risk increase and their profits decrease. So there's all this new innovation happening in the field. There's new tools, there's new big data tools, there's new tools like Know the Chain, there's new uh, actors entering the field, and everybody's looking for this, this goal of getting beyond a victim response mm -hmm. and working downstream and getting actually to strike at the heart of the, the, the criminal dynamics that, that's leading to this, mm -hmm. banks at the table, credit cards at the table, 
landlords at the table. Maybe landlords can start evicting some of these mm -hmm. illicit massage businesses just mm -hmm. by taking their own action. Mm -hmm. So that's, this, that's kind of where we are as a field, is this entrepreneurship and innovation to get to disruption. And I think all of these are examples of that, which is incredibly exciting. So you've got to get much more business engagement at mm -hmm. this. Yes, Kelly. And I would agree wholeheartedly with Brad. And at Humanity United, we're proud to partner with the White House on the uh, Partnership for Freedom. And actually, next week, we are launching the second challenge, which is rethink supply chains on this exact topic to really foster more innovation, more entrepreneurship on the issue around supply chain issues, whether that be traceability, worker voice, or the issues with labor migration these days. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're launching that in, in a sense to encourage more entrepreneurs to enter the space and, and capitalize on, to Brad's point, where we're currently at in the field. Mm -hmm. Ernie raised early on in the conversation that um, we will not be successful unless we address demand, right? Mm -hmm. So we, I've heard this say, said in, in a lot of different contexts, but we can't arrest our way out of this problem. We mm -hmm. can't arrest our way out of this problem. We just mm -hmm. don't have enough law enforcement. We don't, even with all of the great work that's happened, we just don't have the resources. And so it really needs to be consumers driving it, companies driving it, sort of the commitment across our, our society that we won't tolerate human trafficking and making decisions, whether it's landlords, whether it's Walmart, whether it's um, agricultural producers, et cetera. Um, and I think that's where we're going to be most successful. And I think that's where we as an administration are looking for partnerships. Before we open it to questions, I want to just take a quick look at rules and regulations. Mm. Uh, we have anti-money laundering rules. We have counter-terrorist financing. Mm. We have anti-bribery laws. All of these can be used in the trafficking field. They're all ways in which you engage the financial institutions, the corporate sector, and get their accountability and respons responsibility there. Are these tools sufficient? Do we need some new ones for trafficking? Amy, Kelly, yeah. John. Years of experience looking at the issues of counting the financing of terrorism, anti-money laundering, um, you know, it's that regulatory catalyst that has a focus that really accelerates you know, the elevation of an issue like this uh, becoming an issue, a mandatory issue for the global financial community. Um, you know, we've mentioned many banks, many payment processors, uh, many organizations care a lot about this and are taking real action, but I think it's that, that level of, uh, that, that higher level of uh, regulatory focus uh, enforcement that really signals globally. That's what gets it on which to I think the, underscores the border, is a global, into the border. This is a global issue. Um, and these groups are very organized, are behind uh, much of this activity, and they're able to, you know, conduct jurisdictional arbitrage, use, use countries, and the way countries don't work very well together, there's, you know, different laws between them. And so, you know, using that kind of approach, they're able to circumvent, you know, some of these other regulations that are in place that are not that great at, at maybe attacking the problem. Mm. Killing, uh, yeah. I think there are some new tools that are needed. There's legislation pending in Congress, for example, that would replicate the California mm -hmm. supply chain mm -hmm. uh, law and would require, yeah. I mean, companies are really reluctant to engage in this because they're convinced it'll cost them a lot of money and increase their liability. Yeah. So I think they need some help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Killian, you've seen an increase in the amount of uh, requirements placed upon companies. Yeah, I mean, not just in the United States, but you internationally. Yeah, London. I mean, increasingly too. You have an uh, uh, EU executive order, similarly to what we saw in the U.S., where you have to disclose by 2017 on broad ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And so this this conversation around uh, regulated or, or legal disclosure in terms of how you manage your supply chain is coming, and that ha is having an inward pressure on companies. And, and it's also a real cost. You had Apple reimbursing earlier this year $21 million of uh, fraudulent fees that were charged to workers who had been recruited. That's a real cost. Yes, Apple can afford it, but it's a real cost that I think a lot of these companies are waking up to the reality that these are issues that they have to take serious, and if they don't, and they don't change their management practices, they don't think about how when they give a sourcing agreement to a contractor, if they can fulfill that, what might happen? It's going to be something that they directly impacts them financially, whether it's through lawsuits or civil litigation or whatever it is. It's something that they they are beginning to wake up to and take seriously. Great. Uh, let me open it to questions from the audience. Uh, there's a gentleman over here with his hand raised. Do we have somebody with a mic? Whoops. Hi, um, my name is Matthew Bauer. Um, I'm a student at Towson University, proud former intern of TRSS. Um, I was also an intern um, at the National Consortium uh, for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism called START, long acronym. Um, but that was at the University of Maryland, and I worked on a, uh, a project there, a DOD project called PIT, Project on Illicit Trafficking. Uh, part of what I had to do was to profile different transnational criminal organizations, um, you know, fungible resources, group hierarchy, things like that. Um, and when I came across um, some of them that engaged in human trafficking, I saw this, uh, you know, distinction um, between you know, different types of human trafficking that I, I, I don't really see is identified in, in, in talking about it. I, what I mean is uh, the human trafficking that is, you know, specifically for the use of sexual exploitation, um, you know, domestic servitude or um, forced manual labor, um, rather than, um, you know, mi migrant smuggling, which is, you know, the voluntary, um, you know, uh, people trying to get across, you know, state lines or being smuggled into a country that is from, you know, an upfront fee. Um, so what I was wondering is, um, do you see that transnational criminal organizations whom engage in the type of hum human trafficking, um, like sexual exploitation, domestic servitude, and forced manual labor, um, also engage in migrant smuggling, utilizing, you know, the same uh, trafficking networks, the same methods, um, but as like a different source of revenue that comes up front from the individual who's volunteering to be smuggled? Um, and how does uh, the voluntary nature of traffic persons for the purpose of migrant smuggling um, complicate uh, the detection and mitigation measures that are taken for um, forced trafficking for sexual exploitation? That might be for you, Amy. <laughs> the complicated. So, the lines are a little bit blurry, mm -hmm. is what I'd say. I'd say that we do know that um, whether people are being moved for forced labor, labor or whether they're being moved because they want to escape a particularly bad situation or look for a better opportunity um, doesn't always matter to the people who are moving them, right? So they're using, they'll use the same, as I said earlier, document facilitators or smuggling routes or pay off the same um, cartels along the way. Um, I think often 
um, you'll see the difference once people arrive in the United States, right? And so what happens, speaking from the United States point of view, and so what happens here um, may not necessarily be what happens along the way. And so we have, I say we look at all of it, right? So we have the Human Smuggling and Trafficking Center, which was um, created by legislation. Um, and to be frank, that's, that's been an organization within the government that we've really struggled to make work. But what we found is that we have needed to take the people and the expertise on human trafficking and marry it up with the people who understand smuggling networks um, and other illicit networks. And once we've done that, and as we marry that up, we actually see there's a lot of connectivity between the two. Um, so our goal is to kind of take it on in all of its forms. We think they're at the, on the, the victim side, there are a host of resources, um, as Brad said early on, that we needed to build to make sure that the victims of trafficking in the end um, receive the kind of care and services that, they're, that they need ultimately. Um, but in terms of the movement of people, sometimes there's not a lot of difference. Another question? Yes, uh, lady over here, I think. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Nicole Golden. I'm a consultant. I work with the World Bank, among others, and I teach at uh, George Washington University. And my question is, you talked about the foundation, about um, what you've been building. Um, and we know from other issues that you can't really you can't manage what you can't measure. And so, from my understanding, one of the big issues in, in responding to trafficking is really understanding where it's happening and in what form. And um, I think the, the scale and scope is as big as it is that we know is probably even bigger and in terms of getting the resources that are needed to respond. So, how, what is the challenge of sort of understanding trafficking from a sort of reporting, monitoring, and where do you think big data can help in that? And taking that globally, as you're all well aware, uh, trafficking is sort of now has a mention in the sustainable development goals, in particular in, in goal 16. And are you encouraged by that in terms of how that can help encourage that much more data collection in terms of monitoring and responding uh, to that on a global level, national level? Thanks. Okay. Others, right. others could pitch in. Um, I, I do think there was a lot of excitement in the field that the SDGs included forced labor, human trafficking, slavery, weren't as present in the, in the MDGs, but there was some really key advocacy that happened to get that in. Um, there's even a, a new kind of implementation group forming called Alliance 8.7, which uh, in addition to SDG 5, 8.7 and some of the 16s and even some of the 17s all mention and could be relevant. So I, th I think, yes, there's an opportunity for increased measurement. I think the ILO wants to drive a lot of that 8.7 implementation. So there's excitement there. I think in, in the US specifically, where, where I'm most familiar working, and Ernie referenced this earlier, there hasn't really been a single comprehensive all forms, multi-year study of the prevalence of human trafficking in the United States it just hasn't happened. Different people have taken different stabs at it. They've looked at, they've looked at the cross-border flow, which only counts the migrant trafficking, but doesn't count the US citizen trafficking of internal victims. They've looked on the sex side, but haven't looked as in-depth on the labor side. There's been some work done within the government with the HSTC and others, but 
Um, that was government-only work. And so the field doesn't have a collective number that everybody in the field uses to say trafficking is 670,000 people in America. Um, the Global Slavery Index did come out, which, which this Australian philanthropist, Andrew Forrest, and his group, Walk Free, has started to put out around the world, puts the US number at 65,000 per year. Personally, I think that's quite low. Um, that next GSI will come out in April 2016, where they'll have a new revised number. But I think we're hungry for a baseline, because we keep getting asked, is it going up or is it going down? But without the baseline, it's hard to really say that. And then you have critics of the anti-trafficking field and the naysayers and others who are professors and others that kind of make their career on saying, that's a load of BS. But I think it's easy to shout from the sidelines and not actually be in the fight. I, I find some of those, even the Washington Post fact checker with the Pinocchios and whatever else, I think it's, it's, it's pointing out certain weaknesses in the field, but it's not actually getting to the core of the problem, which is we do have a ginormous problem, a huge problem. We hear, we've heard about 21,000 cases, and we think the hotline is just the tip of the iceberg. I think the number is easily in the hundreds of thousands. And even though there are data problems, I'd rather not use the data problems as an excuse to say that there's not a problem, but as an excuse to say that was just an earlier stage in the field and we haven't gotten to the point where we really, we really need to get to. We're going to get to a point where there's a comprehensive study in the United States and around the world. We're going to have a much better grasp of the issue. The SDGs are going to help us get there. And then we could really measure from year to year, is trafficking going down and are we dismantling it? That's the future of the field. The data will get better over time. But until we get that multi-year study, all forms in the United States, sex, labor, men, women, migrants, US citizens, all different types of documented status, we won't have that number yet. And that, that's a challenge and a weakness of the field still. Yeah. You, no, I, I just want to comment briefly. One, I think Brad's exactly right. Not only do we need data, we need common definitions. Uh, so what you count counts. The, the second thing that I think is very encouraging is 8.7 in, in the SDGs and 16.2 on violence against children. Uh, the big challenge we face with this issue, and I can't validate the source of the numbers, but the commonly cited number is that the human trafficking industry in the world today is a $150 billion a year industry. The total government appropriations from all governments to attack that problem is 120 million. $150 billion industry, 120 million response. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. Uh, one of the challenges is, in the wake of the UN SDGs, uh, is there's suddenly a lot of moment, a momentum to raise a lot of money for a lot of different things. And, and that could create confusion and conflict. I'm not sure how much money is out there for these purposes. One of the things I'm excited about that Humanity United is involved in, and I've been helping in a little bit, is there is legislation before Congress out of the Foreign Relations Committee to create an end modern slavery um, initiative, which would propose to generate about uh, a billion and a half to address this problem globally. So I think the potential is enormous right now. There's, Brad is exactly right. There's greater interest than ever before. The challenge is to figure out how to mesh and coordinate that so we can have real focus and achievable targets. Did you have something to add, John? I would just echo everything that was said, but also just add, um, 
you know, I'm really excited about this piece of work we just completed. It's by no means definitive, you know, proof of concept, but working with uh, the NGO community, partnering with um, uh, Verite and Liberty Asia and others, we were able to compile um, a data set, tens of thousands of records of uh, incidents of human trafficking from 2000 to present. And those really smart guys I mentioned a minute ago from MIT, our data innovation lab, they were able to, to analyze this data and really um, identify network clusters. So they were able to find patterns in distinct corridors between countries, pairs of countries or groups of countries that may be helpful in countering this problem. Um, and also identifying a relatively small group of overarching uh, networks involved. So it's promising to the extent that, you know, I think there's a ton of potential there. Do I have any questions over here? Yes. I'd uh, like to wait for a microphone so everyone can hear you. Thank you. Thank you. So obviously we're dealing with the international phenomena, and I was just wondering if, if it would be possible to characterize the degree of cooperation the United States has been able to forge with foreign countries from which many of the victims originate, and what more do you think could be done to try to forge improved international uh, cooperation to combat the problem? Yeah, I, first of all, um, as you may know, Don um, recently was on our team in the federal government. And so there are very few people who, have, who know the issue as well and have helped to contribute to our understanding of it. So um, I'm glad to see you here. Um, but I think there's, there's some really good examples of foreign cooperation. Um, I have personal experience working with Mexico as part of our security cooperation group with them. Um, there are some really terrific examples of where, working with the Mexican government, we've identified um, trafficking networks um, that are operating across our common border. And the Mexican government, the, um, their prosecutor's office, has taken some enforcement actions um, on their side where we don't have the jurisdiction or the, the resources or tools um, to go after a network. And we've been able to take uh, action on our side. And I think um, that is probably kind of the best model that we can hope for, where we work with kind of a source country and we have the demand and we share information and intelligence so that um, we can really maximize opportunities to take down the network. Um, there, we have similar relationships, um, for example, with the United Kingdom and, and a couple of other countries. Um, but what we're really trying to do is to build that capacity around the world. And um, we have looked at, um, um, we're working with our ambassadors um, and our country teams to find, first of all, we have to have willing partners. Um, second of all, we have to build the capacity within those countries to the extent it doesn't exist, and then to, to create the information sharing channels. Um, so I think there is a lot of work that remains to be done. Um, I know that this is an issue that's been prioritized by our president and our secretary of state, and so as we travel around the world, this is a message we take around the world with us, and then we just look for examples to highlight it and basically give credit to the foreign, country, foreign governments that are taking action and so that we can kind of maximize each other's efforts. Mm -hmm. okay. Do I have one more question? Then, no, then I'd like to go back to the panel. We've heard a lot. I've, let me just summarize a few headlines yeah. that come to my attention. 
um, you've reaffirmed that data is an absolutely critical component of what you do, but we need more of it, better, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and can't take it to the next level without improving the data. Um, the demand side has to be addressed. Big piece of work there. Um, and then disrupting the business model of trafficking is a crucial component, and we're getting to an important stage there, and bringing the corporate sector into discussions around that is key to attacking the supply chain, taking responsibility. And as part of that, that corporate engagement in multi-stakeholder models, um, whatever you might call it, is another key component. Those are some of the highlights that I've taken from your conversations, but I want to go, starting with John, all the way down and give you the opportunity to say if there's one key action that you would like to put before people to put traffic in. <laughs> this is my shot, right? <laughs> what, what is the most important wow. thing that could be taken I mean, I think, to? I think it's just greater partnership, more partnership, more collaboration. Can I just yep. say the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was not well, pre-planned. My, my California optimism is going to come out here uh, a little bit. And I, I think what Brad said earlier about where we've come in the past 15 years and this opportunity for more entrepreneurship, more innovation, um, we've, we've gotten there because of the hard work that we've done to get here. And I think it's a really great opportunity for us to continue to lead. And, and I would encourage anybody to take a look at uh, Partnership for Freedom, another great example of a type of partnership uh, in which we're hoping to spur more innovation and thinking around how to rethink supply chains to make sure that they are respecting people um, and serving us the goods that we buy every day. Honey. Um, I'd like to talk about something completely different. And, and that is the theme of this meeting today is big data, bad actors. And I think data, the use of data, the analytical use of data, the targeted use of analytical data is absolutely essential uh, if we're going to deal with this. The kind of work that Brad is doing with, with Google and Palantir, the kind of work that Thomson Reuters Special Services uh, does. The big challenge that I see in this time of controversy over the use of data is that I think it has to be targeted. Uh, if you collect everything, you have nothing because you have to go from this mass of data to particular targets in particular situations. So, you know, I believe fervently in the rights of individual privacy, but I think there are ways that we can use big data in a targeted way that goes after this problem in a way that we haven't done yet. Uh, and so I think the use of data is essential to solving it, but I think it has to be done in a careful, intelligent, targeted manner. Much more sophisticated. Amy. So I think um, having worked on trafficking issues for my entire career, I think the, the bottom line for me is that the government is not enough, right? It's just we don't have we don't have the capacity to take it on alone. And so we will um, create the partnerships with foreign governments. We will make it part of our diplomacy. We'll make it part of our law enforcement. We'll make it part of, it, part of our intelligence collection. But really, it's the individual consumer. It's the corporate actor. It's the um, uh, sort of the, the social, the community at large um, understanding the problem, feeling a level of responsibility for the problem, making decisions, driving the demand. Um, we, you know, the president, by making a statement that we, within our own supply chain, would not um, procure goods that were 
trafficked, um, I think is the first step, but we need that to be much, much, much broader if we're really gonna take on this problem. Thank you. Brad. Yeah. This thing keeps popping off. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think for me it's 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 echoing it's echoing and really reinforcing the point that Ernie made about uh, the resources in the fight. Mm -hmm. The this really there there's about to be a uh, presidential campaign that happens within the trafficking field that's calling on the presidential candidates to make a massive increase in the investment of resources going to fight this issue, akin to what happened with PEPFAR and HIV AIDS, where the investment increased into the billions. And so there has been a, a theme in the trafficking field of when is going to be that PEPFAR moment of getting out of the millions into the billions so that this is much more of a proportional fight. And whether or not that, that campaign catches on, whether or not the presidential candidates actually grab a hold of it and do make these commitments that if I'm president, I will invest $3 billion in the fight against slavery, that's something for that campaign to try to make happen. But I think that right now, we are taking on a, a giant, giant problem with, with nowhere near the resources to do that and to resource the safety net and to resource the law enforcement task forces or the, the, the resources that went to the OCDEF task forces and others. So, we're hoping to see this, this hockey stick increase in the resources of the fight. And Ernie mentioned uh, the, the End Modern Slavery Initiative, which, which has enormous promise, and also the Freedom Fund, which is a, a similar fund which has promise. So we'd love to see this, this massive increase in resources. But I, I also think, though, that, that the reinforcing a point that, that Killian made, we've seen a dramatic shift in business being really core to this fight. Whereas I think in the first 15 years, it was heavily driven by government, civil society, law enforcement, and grassroots actors. And business wasn't as much at the table for a wide variety of reasons. Maybe concerned about brand, concerned about uh, how, how costly this will be to address, and also worried about, will we be the first one to, to have a kind of an ex expose where the rest of our field do doesn't get as, as exposed. But now I think we've seen a, a massive shift where now business is very present at the table, whether or not it's through the disclosure legislation, whether or not it's through the new tools that are being provided, whether or not it's through le leadership happening within business and just straight up moral leadership of we're going to do this. And, and also on the, the stick side, some, some pretty big lawsuits that have happened against certain corporations. All of those things have been logs on the fire for business to really be very present at the table where this no longer is law enforcement, government, NGO only, it's business at the table too. And I think that's a huge shift in, in the field with enormous promise because now you have the reach and the spend of those companies that can play a role. On the sex trafficking side though, where one major supply chain doesn't exist and you don't have one change in policy that's going to get rid of 9,000 illicit massage businesses or thousands of little pimping brothels or whatever else, that's when it comes back to a conversation about behavior change and the demand. Because as long as there is a giant demand of lots and lots of people paying for sex, whether or not they don't think they're paying for little kids or they don't think they're paying for slaves, they think they're just paying for innocuous voluntary commercial sex, what they don't realize is, is that they're actually driving the profit incentive of those traffickers. 
And I think there's going to be a real conversation about behavior change and demand about seat belts and smoking and can we create that level of behavior change in our society. Some people think it's pointless. Some people think it's essential to have that conversation. But I, I, I happen to be one of the people that think it's essential to have that conversation on the demand side for the sex side. But on the labor side, having businesses at the table is huge. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a fabulous panel to put the human face on the issues of big data and bad actors. I thank you for participating. I thank all of you in the audience, and particularly to Thomson Reuters and the Atlantic Council for hosting this fascinating day that's brought so many very interesting issues to light. Please do join us. We're going to uh, step outside for cocktails, and thank you so much for a most interesting day. Thank you. Thank you.